0: Podcast, looking for an arc with David Alt, Jen Gupta, Libby Jones, Mark Perver, and Chris Waring. The Jodcast, August 2010, extra edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Jen Gupta, and joining me today is Libby Jones and Mark Perver. Hi guys. Hi, Jen. Hi. So, Libby is now on her second jogcast and Mark is making his presenting debut, although he's been featured on the jogcast both as an interviewer and an interviewee. So, welcome, Mark.
1: Thank you. Thought it was time to dip my toe in the waters. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps literally this time.
0: Yeah, if you're wondering about our witty comment, it is tipping it down with rain in Manchester at the moment. We've got thunder, lightning. You might, there might be some thunder in the background during this show, so I apologise for that if there is. Before we get started on this show, um, I'd like to mention Jod Pub, which is something that we thought about in January and mentioned in the January show, but never got round to organising. Basically, at Jodcast Live, while it was great to meet people and talk to the listeners a bit, we were so rushed for time, we overran so much that we didn't really have the chance to properly sit down and chat to people. So the idea is that we all meet up in a pub somewhere in Manchester, no microphones unless you guys want them, and we just sit and chat and get to know each other. So we haven't picked a date yet. It's probably going to be sometime in September because Megan's over for a conference, so hopefully we can get her down as well. So when we've picked a date, we'll put it on the forum, on Twitter, on Facebook, and we'll also mention it in the September show. So keep an eye out for that.
1: Come down and see us in our natural environment. (laughs) The
0: pub. (laughs) Yes.
1: In this extra edition, Chris Waring answers your astronomical questions, but we begin with another interview from Dave's Travels in North America, this time, his visit to Snow Lab.
2: I have been lucky enough to join Dr. Fraser Duncan, who is the associate director of operations here at the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. And this morning, I've had an an incredibly um, interesting tour, two kilometers down underneath the Earth's crust here at Sudbury. Uh, so that's probably a, a good place to start, uh, Fraser. And thank you very much for coming on the Jodcast, by the way. Let's start off. Why Sudbury?
3: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Not a problem. Uh, Sudbury is it, an interesting story in itself. That um, uh, The reason we came to this site, first of all, was to have a very deep mine site. We wanted to have a, a very uh, large overburden of rock for our initial experiment, which was the SNOW project, the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. But it's not just simply because there was a deep mine here. It was because Canada had an inventory of heavy water, which is used as a moderator in Canadian nuclear reactors. So it was really a fortuitous coincidence that uh, Canada, uh, the province of Ontario in Canada, had a large supply of heavy water, and we had these deep mine sites. So we had the right material to do a particular experiment, and we had the right site to do it really within a few hundred kilometers of each other, so it was an ideal uh, set of circumstances coming together for that experiment. Why we're in Sudbury and why we're two kilometers underground is to hide from cosmic rays. So our the experiment we originally came here for was to measure the flux of neutrinos, a subatomic particle produced in the Sun, and we have to look for them by putting a detector deep underground to get away from the influence of cosmic rays. So the cosmic rays, um, uh, the simplest form of that are uh, particles coming from the sun, things that produce the aurora borealis and such. Those are a a form of cosmic ray, but uh, they're a relatively benign form. They mostly don't penetrate the atmosphere. The ones we're mostly worried about are cosmic rays produced elsewhere in the galaxy or outside of our galaxy. These are very, very high-energy particles, and they're deeply penetrating. So we have 2 kilometers of rock between the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory and the surface, and that shields most, but not all, of the cosmic rays. So uh, on surface here, where we're sitting, you would get a cosmic ray passing through your hand, about two of them every second or so. Underground, with two kilometers rock over top of us, we would get a cosmic ray passing through a square meter every four days on average. So it's this reduction by a factor of 50 million of the cosmic rays that
2: interests us. Okay, so so we're, we're wanting to observe neutrinos, but what's, what's so special about them?
3: Well, this was the original purpose of the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, and the reason we want to look at neutrinos is they were seen as an opportunity to look at how the sun works so it, it's long been a question in science of why why did the sun shine and in, in this in the 20th century rather the the theory was put forward that the sun shines by nuclear fusion that four hydrogen atoms bond together to form a helium atom and also produce a, a large amount of energy and two particles called uh, neutrinos and it's those neutrinos that offer us an opportunity to look at how the Sun works. The The problem with the Sun is we look at it today and we see this brilliant ball of fire but the energy uh, that we're seeing today is eight minutes old in the travel time from getting to the, from the Sun to the Earth but in fact it took about a million years of that energy to get from the center of the Sun where it was produced to the surface of the Sun so any information about what's happening at the center of the Sun is long since washed out you you, you don't learn any you, you know what the sun is producing in terms of energy today but you don't un, can't look at the, the, the how it shines and say what the what the processes are going on inside neutrinos on the other hand essentially escape from the Sun unmolested um, and then travel that eight minutes to earth where we can potentially detect them. And so it was originally seen as an opportunity to look at how the Sun works. So experiments in the 1960s and the 1970s through 80s were constructed to look for this flux of neutrinos from the Sun. But then there was a surprise. They they did detect neutrinos from the Sun, but they detected a deficit of them. There was only about a third of the neutrinos expected seen. And so that was dubbed what uh, became the solar neutrino problem. There were a lot of ideas about what caused it, whether it was um, just an incredibly hard calculation to understand how the sun works and just a small error in that calculation or a mismeasured probability for the reactions underlying it uh, would lead to this factor of three. Some people would say a factor of three is pretty good. So that was an answer that would interest astrophysicists because it means that there's a problem in astrophysics that you can solve. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the possible answer that interested uh, subatomic physicists such as myself is that there's some property of the neutrino that we don't understand and that that's going to solve the solar neutrino problem. So the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory was constructed as an opportunity to solve that problem. And it was able to solve it in um, a unique way because uh, one hypothesis for why the Sun uh, appears to produce fewer neutrinos than uh, than expected is that we only expect one type of neutrino to be produced in the Sun, the electron neutrino. possibility was put forward is that neutrinos undergo what's called a flavor oscillation, that the, the Sun produces the electron neutrino that you would expect, but something happens to them on their way to the Earth that they change into another type of neutrino, which of which there are three known. There's the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino, and the tau neutrino. So by changing... From electron neutrinos at the Sun to another type of neutrino, if you're only looking for electron neutrinos, and that's more or less what these other experiments were doing, they were only sensitive to electron neutrinos, uh, then you'll miss uh, the total flux. So the SNOW experiment was different from other experiments in that it was able to be sensitive both to electron neutrinos, what we expect the Sun to produce but also at the same time be sensitive to all the flavors of neutrinos so different types of neutrinos are dubbed flavors so electron neutrino muon neutrino tau neutrino. The snow detector could detect any flavor of neutrino and then you could just do a direct comparison you look at the you can compare with the other experiments that were done by looking for electron neutrinos uh, then you can compare that to the total flux of neutrinos uh, that snow could also measure and then you could conclude, one, whether the Sun is producing the expected flux, and two, whether the other experiments were correct. And the conclusions from the SNOW experiment were both. When we measured the electron neutrino flux from the Sun, we agreed with the other experiments, the other ways of doing it. And when we compared, measured the total flux of neutrinos, it was consistent with what the theoretical models said the Sun should produce. So, it told us several things. One, it said that we understand how our parent star works. We understand how how our sun works, and presumably from that we understand how it's going to evolve. Um, that's pretty exciting. It's a, it's a moment in time where you can say, definitively say we understand how our how our sun works. Um, the other thing it tells us is there's this oscillation going on, this, this flavor conversion from electron neutrino to other types of neutrinos. So, this is uh, direct evidence for that—it's uh, confirmed by other experiments. So there are other experiments in looking at other types of neutrinos produced by other interactions, cosmic rays in the atmosphere. Uh, there's since since snow there are other experiments with um, reactor neutrinos also confirming these these results. So so now we now have this much richer picture of what the neutrino is. Uh, we now at one point it was thought to be a massless subatomic particle that barely interacted. Uh, which is why you can put a detector with two kilometers of rock over top and still detect them. For that matter, the two kilometers isn't anything. It's the uh, it's the uh, 12,000 kilometers of rock to the other side of the Earth when the sun is on the other side of the planet and you still detect them. Mm-hmm. Um, that That uh, is more significant. But, of course, there's also the, the half million kilometers that the neutrinos are traveling through the sun initially. So... It's a, it's a very elusive particle, but you build a big enough detector, you can, you can see them. Uh, we understand now that they have a very small mass, um, that they undergo these flavor oscillations. And there's now a lot of excitement in, in the subatomic physics field of, of trying to understand these properties, because once you understand that they undergo this property, now there are a number of physics parameters that one wants to investigate about them and so there's a number of experiments uh, varying from experiments with uh, rea- nuclear reactors to uh, particle beam uh, long baseline neutrino oscillation experiments that are looking to understand these properties of the neutrino further So that, that was a big triumph of the, of the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory
2: mm-hmm. uh, If I could just um, sure. take a step back uh, I've seen the detector today but uh, Tell us a little bit more about the design of said detector and how you got it down there.
3: Mm -hmm. So the the heart of the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, the SNOW experiment, is a 1,000 tons of heavy water. So heavy water is a, uh, a variation of water. It occurs naturally in the environment, but it's very rarely. I've forgotten the exact quantity. It's around one part in 1,400 in natural water that is heavy water. Uh, What heavy water is, instead of H2O, we call it D2O, where we replace the hydrogen with deuterium. So deuterium is hydrogen, but it's hydrogen with, instead of a bare proton, it has a neutron on it. So it's a little bit heavier than ordinary hydrogen. It's twice the mass of the hydrogen. And in terms of heavy water, if you have pure D2O, it's about 10% heavier than ordinary H2O. So when we talk about water we we would talk about heavy water and light water, light mm-hmm. water being what everybody drinks. Um, that's the heart of the experiment and what was realized with heavy water is that it would make a very good target for neutrinos because the, that deuteron um, provides a, a b- almost bare neutron that that neutrino can interact with and it could interact in several ways one way is that it could interact with the neutron and converting it to a proton, producing an electron, and that produced this energetic electron that we could see. And that was a reaction that's only sensitive to the electron neutrino. So that, that allows us to confirm the other experiments. The other thing it could do is the, the neutrino could bounce off an electron uh, in the in either the hydrogen or the deuterium rather, or the oxygen, and that's called an elastic scattering interaction. And That's what other experiments have looked at. And that's mostly this uh, electron neutrino sensitivity. It has a little bit of sensitivity to other types. But what really made uh, the deuteron special, heavy water special, as a target is that the neutrino could disintegrate the deuteron. It breaks up the proton and the neutron, So that leaves a bare proton, which is just hydrogen, but it leaves a bare neutron as well. And that neutron is a signature uh, for that interaction, and that's sensitive equally to all the different types of neutrino. So that's where you could directly measure the the total flux of neutrinos from the sun, is by measuring the production of these neutrons. The idea in principle is very simple. You want to build a large detector with a large mass of of heavy water, because the reactions are very rare. A 1,000 tons produces about. Uh, about a dozen uh, of these charge current interactions with the electron neutrino per day and about a dozen neutral current which uh, the interactions with any type of neutrino per day so 20 or 30 events per day uh, is not very many you're talking about three to six thousand per year so statistically it's not a huge number of events Uh, so you need a lot of it so you you have a thousand tons of heavy water the heavy water itself is not inexpensive. It exists in the environment, but it's energetically expensive to, to purify it, to to extract it from ordinary water. And it's normally used for nuclear reactors, uh, for the Candu nuclear reactor. Um, that has a street value of about $300 million for the 1,000 tons. So we had a loan from Atomic Energy of Canada. So I believe that loan was for... Uh, for a dollar, um,
2: for just a dollar,
3: <laughs> just a dollar, and the promise that we we, 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 we give them. it back. <laughs> so, so we actually had very tight inventory controls on this. So, to the point where, if you had a spill, you would um, take a, a, a cloth that had been previously weighed, wipe it up, reweigh it to uh, assay how much you you picked up, and that would be put in a drum for recycling. Wow. To, to be repurified, so it was a very tight inventory mm. control.
4: Either that
2: was a rather large section out of your wage packet, if you it, spill it. It.
3: <laughs> it was significant. So it was three hundred dollars a liter. So, so you have that's your target material. Now you have to detect the interaction. So, there's two things you're looking for. There's uh, you're looking for the evidence of these energetic interactions with the electron neutrino producing a secondary electron. The signature for that was the production of what's called Cherenkov light. So you never see the neutrino. No one directly observes neutrinos. You can't watch it form a wake through something because it interacts so rarely. Um, it doesn't uh, leave any evidence of itself unless it interacts and bounces off something. And what you see is the secondary particles, the secondary things that were were tickled, if you like, or or converted from the neutrino. So you're looking for that that Energy deposit from that to bounce off an electron, or the conversion of that proton, uh, sorry, the neutron to a proton, and the secondary electron from that. And you can see that by looking for shrink of light. So the secondary particle is moving faster than the local speed of light in the material. So it's an optical medium. So the the speed of light in that medium is moving slower than it is in vacuum, and that, so a charged particle moving faster than the speed of light. Uh, less than the speed of light in vacuum, of course, um, will produce a wake. It's the optical equivalent of a sonic boom. And you actually produce a cone-shaped burst of light. The other signature you're looking for is the neutron. And I can come to that in a second. So the cone of light, um, you you look for it with an array of photomultiplier tubes, an array of photodetectors that uh, uh, are sensitive to single photons of light. And for the snow detector, this was an array of, of almost 10,000 of these surrounding uh, the heavy water. But you didn't want the photomultiplier tubes, these photodetectors, inside the heavy water because they're mildly radioactive. They would have a few parts per billion, of about 100 parts per billion of radioactive materials in them, and you don't want that in inside your actual uh, detection volume <laughs> of the heavy water. So you have to isolate them from the heavy water. Uh, but you still have to see the light that's produced in the heavy water. So that means you have to put your heavy water in a transparent vessel. So the way we did that was uh, put it inside a, a sphere made out of acrylic. And this sphere turned out uh, ended up being 12 meters in diameter. It was uh, 5 centimeters thick on average, and it was made from 122 panels that had to be bonded together. Down in the, inside the mine because this is, this is far too large an object to take underground. We have to take things uh, underground inside a uh, an elevator car, which is called uh, for obvious reasons when you ride in it the cage. Mm-hmm. Um, objects in that have to fit within a few meters, so you bring these these panels of acrylic down about two by two-meter panels, and then you bond them together in, in rows, and then you bond the rows together, and eventually form a sphere out of out of that. And that was a very exacting and long process. No one attempted to build anything this large out of acrylic, uh, let alone it, under
2: such adverse conditions. And and that, it had to be a specific accuracy, didn't it? it well,
3: it, yeah, the, the, the accuracy was for structural strength. So out of a 12-meter diameter vessel, it was... Uh, Accurate to about one part in in a thousand, so it was a maximum deviation. was about one centimeter or so from from a perfect sphere for this. So that, that was a very exacting process. Mm-hmm. And there are times when your the bonding process for the acrylic piece to piece was done with acrylic monomer, which uh, polymerized to form more acrylic. And if that process failed, you would have to cut the piece out, form a, a patch to put back in, which kind of meant more bonding. The first time uh, a bond was, uh, uh, failed to, to form properly, it, it took about six months to develop the techniques to, to cut it out and rebond it. No one had ever attempted mm. to do that before with acrylic. The second time it happened, it took six weeks. And the third time it <laughs> took six days. A dramatic learning curve in, in that mm. set of techniques. Mm-hmm. This vessel took uh, a number of years to fabricate and surrounding that then is an array of these these light detectors the photomultiplier tubes so 9600 or so of them in a geodesic dome that surrounded the this acrylic vessel And it's separated from the vessel uh, with a gap of about two meters. And the purpose of that gap is to to provide uh, distance from this radioactive source, these photomultiplier tubes, and your target volume. So you didn't want them to influence the the heavy water. Now, you immerse this entire assembly in in a cavern filled with with, uh, ordinary water, light water, uh, about 7,000 tons of light water surrounding this and the light water between the phototubes and the acrylic vessel acts as a shield, then you have additional water outside of that, which acts as shielding from the radioactivity that naturally occurs in the rock of the cavern. So we went underground to get away from cosmic rays, but that still left us with uh, the background radiation that's just naturally occurring from, from the rock. There's a few parts per million of, of uranium and thorium in the rock, and then they have all their decay products, including uh, radon gas, radium, um, various things, and a number of these, these decays could produce significant backgrounds. One of the ones that was the greatest concern is, is where, where decays near the bottom of these chains just before they become stable uh, isotopes of lead that produced um, gamma rays that were uh, just a little over 2 MeV in energy. So MeV is a unit of energy used in subatomic physics. An, Me, uh, an electron volt of energy is the energy that it takes to accelerate an electron through 1 volt. So you take a flashlight battery and the energy that, that would accelerate a, a, an electron through would be a little over 1 volt. Mm-hmm. So you take a million flashlight batteries and to end, and that's a mega-electron volt, or an MEV of energy. So uh, some of the gamma rays from these decays are around 2.4, 2.6 MeV, and it takes about 2.2 mega electron volts of energy to break apart a deuteron, producing that free neutron, which looks exactly like that mm-hmm. that uh, neutrino signal, that neutral current neutrino signal. So it's mm-hmm. an exact duplicate of the signal we're looking for. So you had to control that radioactivity very carefully. So a lot of effort was put into Choosing the materials for the detector, the, the purity of the acrylic vessel to hold the heavy water, the purity of of the phototubes uh, that we used to, to view it. I said that they were very radioactive, but they were actually some of the best phototubes in the world. I think they there there's there's a new generation that are that are better now, but they're very small. These these phototubes were uh, made from glass. Uh, uh, produced by, I believe, uh, the Schott company in Germany, and it was just after they had relined a furnace so that it was particularly clean glass. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, it was a very fortuitous circumstances. So, there's a great deal of effort on controlling the, on the, the materials in the detector to make sure that they were clean enough to, to meet the budget for the, the, the tolerable background introduced to the experiment. All this is done inside this. Cavern, uh, this assembly of the detector, the gluing together of the acrylic vessel, the assembly of the photomultipliers around it, the assembly of the water systems uh, inside a clean room, uh, a class 2000 clean room, which is about equivalent to a hospital operating room. And this clean room was, by the way, 10 stories tall. Um, so it's the, 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 the cavern that you saw t- mm-hmm. uh, today. So it was all operated under clean room conditions. Mm-hmm. The the, the purification of the water that we put inside the detector, the heavy water, had to be purified to one part in 10 to the 15 uh, for contaminations uh, about 100 million times uh, cleaner than drinking water. And the the light water, the the ordinary water that surrounded it, about a factor of 10 uh, lower purity. The level of contamination for radium and radon inside the heavy water volume was a little under one atom per ton of water. And that contributed about a 5% background to to the experiment. So
2: that's, and that's why we had to achieve that level. That's quite an engineering feat, really.
3: It, and a lot of R&D, too. The, the techniques that were developed were um, unknown. There were new techniques. There were a lot of conventional things like reverse osmosis and such, but then there was uh, uh, ion exchange filtration developed. Uh, the assay techniques to, to, to measure... Those few atoms were, were specially developed for the experiment. And mm-hmm. It turned out that water is actually one of the worst things to purify because it's known as a universal solvent for very good reasons. Mm-hmm. Almost anything <laughs> dissolves in it, so almost anything can produce a background. The materials mm-hmm. had to be chosen. The acrylic vessel is uh, suspended from above with ropes. Uh, originally, we are going to use uh, Kevlar, the material used for bulletproof mm-hmm. vests, turns out that Kevlar breaks down in ultra-pure water. So we had to switch to another material called Vectran. It's the same material used for the airbags on the Mars landers. Mm. Uh, So a lot of effort had to be put into the materials, not uh, just for radio purity, but for their their, uh, mechanical properties, their ability to withstand what turned out to be a very aggressive environment, ultra-pure water. So all these things had to be factored in. It took many, many man years to, to, to think this through. And, of course, you've made decisions years ahead of construction. So, so a decision you make five years before can make or break the experiment. And there were various moments where, where one wondered whether the right decision had been made. Uh, fortunately, in that case, they had. Yes.
2: Well, the SNO finally got decommissioned in 2007. Uh, so, what is taking its place? What's down in the snow lab now?
3: Well, um, we have a number of projects going on, but l- let me tell you something about the decommissioning of, of, of snow. It was a, it was a sad uh, moment when, when we shut it down for the last time. It was in uh, November 2007. Interestingly enough, uh, 18 hours after we threw the switch, there was the largest earthquake we'd ever experienced at the mine. And it actually uh, damaged some of the photomultiplier tubes in the detector. <laughs> and uh, we, had, we had different ways of measuring the neutral current, the, the neutron measurement. We had uh, dedicated uh, special uh, neutron counters deployed in the water, and it actually, uh, the shock wave from the, the seismic event collapsed five of them. So it actually caused significant damage to the experiment 18 hours after we turned it off. <laughs> so there was a there was a raging debate about whether whether it was the gods being angry with mm-hmm. us or whether they'd just been holding off till we were done <laughs> what we're doing now is the, the the snow detector itself still exists it's still there and it's a wonderful resource it's uh, uh, being what we're planning to do with the snow uh, detector is reutilize it so Instead of putting heavy water into it, we want to put a material called liquid scintillator. And what we'll do with that is search for uh, low-energy solar neutrinos. So it's, again, looking for solar neutrinos, but looking for uh, different types, and that'll help us uh, further understand the mechanisms of how the sun operates, um, refine our models of the sun. It uh, will also test uh, neutrino physics by, by probing them in a different energy regime than we've been able to look at before. Uh, we'll put in uh, a material called neodymium uh, to, to look for what's called neutrino double beta decay, which is uh, a rare form of radioactive decay that's never been observed. We don't know that it exists, but if it does exist, it tells us some profound properties about the neutrino, uh, specifically it tells us the neutrino is its own antiparticle, and that, that in turn could tell us Give us information about the, the creation of leptons in the universe, in the early universe, leptogenesis, and that in turn might tell us about baryogenesis uh, and the formation of matter. Why matter is dominant in the universe over antimatter? So, so looking for neutrinos double beta decay is one of the uh, very interesting experiments we're going to do with the snow. Uh, detector. It's, so this project um, is called Snow Plus. So it takes well, it takes snow and adds that to that. Yes.
2: <laughs> um,
3: another feature of Snow Plus is we'll be able to measure geo-neutrinos, anti-neutrinos actually, from radioactive decay in the Earth. And that'll add information to our understanding of what uh, why the Earth is hot. So, so there's a number of projects there with Snow Plus that um, we'll, be, we'll be able to address simultaneously. It'll also be a supernova detector, just like the Snow experiment was. Uh, Snow Plus will be sensitive to uh, a burst of neutrinos from a supernova in our galaxy. Other other projects we're doing elsewhere in the laboratory uh, on the subject of supernovas. We're building a dedicated supernova detector called HALO. It's actually using recycled parts from the Snow experiment: these neutral current detectors, neutron counters. Uh, in combination with lead from an old uh, cosmic ray observatory that was used, we're going to build a long-term supernova detector. So uh, if there's a supernova in our galaxy, we'll be able to detect it with this. So supernovas are, are quite interesting. When we look at the sun, we see something that obviously is producing enormous amounts of heat and light, and that's the right assessment of the sun. Most of its energy is in the form of light, but about 1% of the energy from the Sun escapes in the form of neutrinos. When we look at a supernova, again we see an enormous amount of light. Uh, Supernovas routinely detected in other galaxies outshine their parent galaxies. So this is an object that for a few weeks is brighter than 100 billion stars all shining at once. And yet a supernova is dominantly a burst of neutrinos. Only 1% of the energy given off by a supernova is visible, but the other 99% is in the form of neutrinos. So it's a massive burst of neutrinos. What we're building with HALO is a detector to look for that burst of neutrinos from a supernova somewhere in our galaxy. And that's uh, very interesting, both from understanding the physics of how supernovas explode, understanding what that pulse shape looks like. Uh, it's interesting for optical astronomers to observe uh, the turn-on of the supernova because these burst of neutrinos will arrive before the visible light. It will get out of the exploding star before the light gets out. These are very interesting things that we can determine. We can
2: also further understand the properties of the neutrino from how that, that burst behaves. But we won't be able to find out where it's coming from, though, from that.
3: That that particular detector will not give any directionality, so you will not know where in the sky it occurs from. So you could say, we saw a supernova, everyone look everywhere. <laughs> and you may not see it, because it could be obscured by dust in our galaxy. There are other experiments, however, um, that have some directionality. For instance, there's a, an experiment in Japan called Super Kamiokande, and it does have some directionality if a supernova occurred. So... The advantage of Halo will be that it can run for many years without much maintenance. It's it's designed to be a low, very low maintenance detector, because the problem is that supernovas are very rare. Uh, probably uh, our best estimates are are that supernovas would occur about once every 50 years in our galaxy. The last one occurred 23 years ago in Supernova 1987A. So they're they're very rare events. You want to wait a long. You have to wait a long time for them. Uh, HALO will tell you a supernova occurred, not where. Uh, super kami if it's running, will have a much better ability to tell you where, probably within a few degrees of where it would occur. One thing that you can do, though, is you can combine results from different experiments, different detectors. So uh, HALO will be part of what's called SNOOS, supernova early warning system. So this is a system that amateur astronomers can sign up to and will receive email messages if a supernova is detected. And what it does is it combines uh, signals from different experiments, different detectors around the world. So it looks for a coincidence. So if uh, one experiment, one detector thinks it sees a supernova... Maybe it did, maybe it was a false alarm. When two or even three or more experiments see them all at the same time, then that's very high confidence. There are mm. different detector types, they're in different laboratories all over the world. Um, so that'll be a very high degree of confidence that a supernova has occurred. Uh, Halo and Snow Plus will be part of the, the SNU's, uh early warning system. And if amateur astronomers are interested, they can. Uh, they can sign up for to be notified of a supernova if it occurs through that system. And I believe Sky and Telescope magazine is is one of the avenues for doing that.
2: We'll put a link to all of those on the show notes as well.
3: But you're, you're right that that particular detector would not tell you where in the sky a supernova occurred. So some of the other experiments we're doing, particularly an astrophysics nature, are our searches for dark matter, primarily uh, WIMP dark ma- matter, weakly interacting massive particles. This is the cosmological dark matter that's believed to form uh, 85% of the mass of the universe, uh, with us meager baryons, protons, neutrons, just being a, a mere 15% or so. The... Uh, searches for that. Uh, we have a number of different experiments that are either now operational or being planned at SNOLAB. They're uh, operational right now. We have the Picasso dark matter search, which is primarily sensitive to what's called the spin dependent interaction, a uh, particular type of uh, hypothesized interaction between WIMPs and ordinary matter. We have the uh, Deep One. Uh, detector which is a prototype uh, based on liquid argon that's uh, really being used primarily as a test bed and is a forerunner to a much larger experiment which will have a detector called D3600 which will have four tons of liquid argon in it to search for, for dark matter and the goal with that experiment is to have a sensitivity of one Dark matter event per ton per year, so, so the goal is to have no background at that level, and that'll that'll be a sensitivity that's about a hundred times greater than what are what the current limits are for dark matter searches. We of course don't know what whether dark matter truly exists. It's the best explanation that we have for uh, the missing mass of the universe or what we perceive as the missing mass of the universe, uh, but we don't know for sure that it's there. So Hence, these searches to try and identify it. And of course, if you see it, then, then you have to quantize it, and understand mm-hmm. its physical properties, and that would be additional experiments, additional efforts. So, we have Deep3600, we have its little brother, uh, Mini Clean, which ha- only has two tons of liquid argon in it. It'll have a much smaller active volume. It employs a different technology, and it's actually also intended to be a, a uh, prototype for future a solar neutrino detector that would use maybe 40 tons of liquid neon. There's also another experiment called KU. The KU experiment uses a bubble chamber technology, which is technology that was used with great success in the 60s and 70s, where you'd have these very large bubble chambers with a particle beams pointed at them, and you'd study the interactions by observing the tracks inside the, the, mm-hmm. the bubble chambers, and it makes these pretty pictures with mm-hmm. the spirals and arcs and things like that. And the, the, That technology's been revived, and the, the idea with Ku is to uh, look for WIMP interactions forming bubbles inside large uh, containers of liquid. So that's another technology.
2: Oh, that's that one where you, you sit there and with your ears pinned to the side it, and hear the pop.
3: Yeah, so the, the Picasso experiment is a small version of that where you have small droplets of uh, freon that is your target material inside a gel matrix. And you detect it by listening for the audible pops. Mm-hmm. For the coup experiment... You will form the bubbles in a larger liquid, and you can hear hear the the acoustic signature, the pop. But you can also um, just take a photograph and see a bubble. So, so there's a number of different technologies that are being developed. Um, uh, many of them centered around dark matter that are to, that we're planning to deploy at SnowLab. Um, there's the uh, CDMS experiment, which is planning to install a test facility at SnowLab. CDMS. Uh, is another dark matter search that uses cryogenic uh, solid state detectors with arrays of sensors on large uh, uh, hockey puck sized discs of germanium to act as the target material and these are cooled down to millikelvin temperatures. Mm-hmm. So so there's a number of different technologies. Dark matter is very much an exciting part of the field mm-hmm. and it's a certainly a central part of the physics program in the expanded laboratory. Now. To hold all these experiments, we've had to increase the size of the laboratory. When snow existed, we built a laboratory to house a single experiment, and it was just large enough to house that experiment. For these new experiments, we need a lot more space, so we're just in the final stages of increasing the laboratory size by about a factor of four. So we've gone from about 10,000 square feet, 11,000 square feet, to to 40,000 square feet that's now clean and will actually be closer to 50,000 square feet when, when we finished all of the expansion. And we have several new experimental halls with odd names such as the Cube Hall or the Cryo Pit or the Ladder Labs to house these different experiments. So, so we're looking at a really exciting science program as we go forward.
2: Well, I, I hope that in a few years' time we can come back to Sudbury here and uh, find out what you've, what you've been up to. Uh, I wish you all the very best with uh, your ongoing researches. Well, thank you um, very much. Thank you ever so much for your time.
0: Thanks for that, Dave. Oh, I'm so jealous he gets to go on all these travel shows North America. It's so annoying. He, I think the other day he went to the NASA base in Houston, which is so... I'm so jealous, but he better have got some interviews for us because, Dave, I think that's the only reason you're going on this tour. He's got a mountain of interviews for the JOGcast, so that's going to keep us going for the next few shows. Now, we haven't had a proper Ask an Astronomer for a while, so we've had a bit of a build-up of questions, and unfortunately, Tim is away on holiday at the moment. But luckily, Mark stepped in to save the day.
1: I went along to Jodrell Bank, and I found Chris Waring, the Science Exhibition and Events Manager at Jodrell, and he answered some of your questions.
4: So our first question is from Zachary Kessin this time. He says, hi, I'm a backyard astronomer in Israel and I'm thinking about buying a 10-inch go-to telescope and building a spectrograph to go with it. If I do build such a thing, what types of objects would it be possible to observe and would there be a scientific use for such observations? So, Zachary, if you do build a spectrograph... You would have to calibrate it against arc lamps. So you could calibrate it against lamps that produce kind of known known spectra of, say, sodium and neon. You could buy some of those and calibrate your telescope and spectrograph against those. And then you could point it at stars and planets, and you could get the spectra and the atmospheric lines of what's in the spectra. So you could detect things like carbon and nitrogen and oxygen or carbon dioxide, and you'd see also the atmospheric lines just in our atmosphere of water and various things like that. So you could do that, and then you could use some of the spectra and measure spectra of various different stars to classify what's known as their spectral type. So with your spectrograph... You could measure the brightness of the star and plot the spectra of the star against it on either side of the diagram, and it would be a colour magnitude diagram, and you'd see a diagonal going across the diagram, which shows you how the way stars are distributed in the galaxy. So our next question is from Neil Campbell. He says, Dear Sir, my query is, as the sun leaves a solar minimum and enters a solar maximum, are we in danger of experiencing solar storms as large or larger as the ones that caused damage in Quebec in 1989? Well, for anyone who doesn't know about it, in Quebec in 1989, a large solar storm knocked out the power grid. Uh, for um, longer than 24 hours, I think, and could have caused millions and millions of pounds worth of damage, and Quebec was left without power for a brief period. So, are we going to have anything like that happen this time round? Well, solar flares are a large explosion in the sun's atmosphere, and most flares occur in the active regions around sunspots. They're a sudden release of magnetic energy. At the moment, we're still really in a solar minimum, strangely enough. We probably should have been coming out and beginning to see many more sunspots, but at the moment we're not seeing very many sunspots at all. We're still in a solar minimum, so we don't see that many solar flares. Having said that, if a solar flare is exceptionally powerful, it can cause a coronal mass ejection, and we did see two of those last week that were pointed towards us at the Earth. And as they passed by us, People could have seen and probably have seen very strong northern lights, the aurora borealis uh, in the northern hemisphere. So if we do get these large coronal mass ejections, our large solar flares, and they interact with our atmosphere, they can affect the Earth's ionosphere and then affects long-range radio transmissions. And sometimes they will affect power systems, but it's unlikely that we will see any of that until somewhere near the solar maximum, which is in probably another five or six years' time. So our third question today is from Ian Curran. It's another black hole question, for which he apologises. He says, is there an underside of a black hole? Or to put it another way, we hear a lot of explanation of event horizons and singularities, but where does all the matter go when it falls into a black hole? What shape is a black hole? So, Ian, let's have a little bit, and everyone else, let's have a bit of a trip with an imaginary observer falling into a black hole. As you approach that black hole, you'd see a, a dark circle which would indicate the event horizon, the point at which nothing can escape from the black hole's grip. Light from the stars behind the black hole is swallowed, so you wouldn't see them, but light from other stars is merely bent around by the black hole's gravity, and you'd see a distortion of space around the black hole. As you approached it, the Schwarzschild radius recedes from you, that's the radius at which no light can escape, and even as you cross that radius, there'd still appear to be a point in front of you where all light is swallowed. So from your point of view, you'd never reach the horizon, even though you'd already crossed it from anyone else looking outside of you. The strangest point, really, is the feeling of the powerful tidal forces that would pull our imaginary observer apart. He was going in feet first, his feet would be stretched away and ripped apart by the strong gravity that you'd feel from the black hole. But really... We think in the centre of Black hole at the singularity, space and the laws of physics break down inside. So the question of where everything goes beyond what we think that it's crushed into a singularity is something that we can't answer with our current knowledge of the universe as to where it'll all go.
0: Thanks for that, Chris. And now we get on to that part of the show where we talk about random things that we can't fit anywhere else in the show. So, um... There's not much to report on at the moment. Um The sun's activity levels are rising. So I think the other day there were five sunspots, uh, which is good. Um, there's been some outbursts of energy at the end of July, beginning of August, which have led to some nice displays of the northern lights. And Libby, I think you went to try and find some, didn't you? I did. I went on quite a big road trip um, <laughs> up a big hill in Rivington, driving around trying to spot these northern lights. But unfortunately, due to the cloud cover, but we couldn't get didn't get to see anything, even though I was there until 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, well, I went down to the InTech Science Centre near Winchester at the weekend, and they had an event on called um, Sunday, and it was Sunday, so, you know, that's, that's funny. And they had some solar telescopes set up and some other activities to do with the sun, mainly aimed at children. But I got to look through one of the solar telescopes, and I think I saw two sunspots and a solar prominence. We should point out that you should never look at the sun directly. Um, never look at it through a telescope unless it's got the proper filters on it. You don't want your eyes to be destroyed. <laughs> I'd like to take a moment actually to plug in tech a bit. It's a wonderful science centre. I remember going to the previous version on school trips and it's had massive improvements since then. So they've got, I think, it's now the second largest planetarium in the country. I think the National Space Centre has now taken the the prime position but they have um, space lectures every second Wednesday of the month where they get a speaker in aimed at, I think, teenagers and older. Um, So they have talks about various aspects of astronomical research and they also have other events on. Um, Telescope Amnesty happens twice a year, I think, which is a great event where the local astronomical societies are around and you can bring your telescope along if you want some advice. You can ask them to try out their telescopes. They have telescopes set up so you can look at the stars and the planets which is really really cool i think more things like that need to need to happen because it can be quite daunting to buy a telescope the last event i want to mention is something called how not to be afraid of the dark which is a meeting of poetry and astronomy featuring dame jocelyn bell which i think sounds great and i'm really going to try and get down to that sometime in september
1: the other big event happening is the Perseid meteor shower which is going on as we speak along with the rain showers um (laughs) It'll be finished pretty much by the time this show goes out. But if you uh, saw any good meteors or particularly if you've got photos, do get in touch with us. We'd love to see those.
0: Yeah, I've got a feeling that we're not going to see much from Manchester.
1: No, and it was the same with the Northern Lights. It was said that they might reach as far down as here, but uh, I didn't see them anyway. I think partly because it was cloudy, partly because I was asleep. <laughs> but again... If you did see the northern lights, um, especially at uh, relatively southern latitudes, do get in touch with us and let us know where you saw them.
0: And then we'll come and invade wherever you are. And that brings us almost to the end of the show, and it's time to round up your feedback. So over on the forum, Rapid Eye and Earth Unit have been continuing the discussion about whether the Jogcast can cure hangovers. And apparently Ian Morrison's voice is very soothing when you have a hangover. So I guess if you're hungover, go listen to The Night Sky.
1: Is that another way of saying he sent you to sleep?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I didn't find that in astronomy lectures when he was my lecturer all those years ago. <laughs> on the email front, I'd like to thank Mark Plevin for his feedback on the July Extra episode, which was my first one, and also thanks to everyone else who welcomed me to the dog cast <laughs> from that. And on Facebook, I'd like to thank Mark George Jacobs, also on the July Extra, for the brilliant effort by the youth... Wing bring us the smashing new show and they should be proud of all their work. I agree with that. I, I really think that the cast, the True Jogcast Juniors did an excellent job with July Extra and we've been getting a lot of positive feedback from that still, so thank you guys again.
1: On Twitter, thanks to Nathan Eakins, As Laroth, C Nature Two, Ryan Astron and Physics Chris for getting in touch.
0: And spreading the Twitter Jogcast love. I I love Twitter names reading them out because some of them just they just don't make sense yeah
1: I'm really sorry if I've mispronounced anybody
0: maybe they don't know how to pronounce it anyway
1: (laughs) we had one bit of post which was a postcard from uh, one of our work experience interviewers Emily Selman who obviously can't get enough of the Jodcast she sent us a postcard from on holiday in France so thank you very much for that and the picture that went with it
0: and if you want to give us your feedback about the show you can contact us via the website at www.jodcast.net On the forum at forum.jodcast.net
1: Through Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast
0: On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook And on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks go to Fraser Duncan for being interviewed and a massive thank you to Chris Waring for standing in on Ask an Astronomer.
1: So until next time, jod on.
0: Bye everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.